welcome to The Knowing Podcast. We're here to talk about healing, about insight, about cultivating and living from our own internal wisdom, and about the intention to live beautifully and compassionately as a human being during these times. We're really happy you're here. Hey everyone, welcome to the Knowing Happy New Year, Happy 2021, Happy 2021, Allison. How are you? Happy 2021. (laughs) Yay. I'm good. I mean, still more, you know, (laughs) interesting things happening down here. (laughs) Um, So yeah, just, you know. Have you actually, have you watched any of the, uh, we are alluding to the, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of inaccurate to call it an attempted coup. Um, but like the, the, whatever you'd call it that happened at the, the Capitol. Um, have you watched any of the footage of the people who were doing it and like how they behave? I have. Oh my God. Yes, I have. <laughs> like it's, I, I mean, know. it's, it's really hard to take it seriously because they, how they presented and, and how they were behaving is so bizarre. Like, um, Stephen Colbert had some, some clips on his show that we were watching last night and you know the the person running the camera is is saying to these people like, "Oh, what happened?" And this woman's like, "I got tear gassed. I got right into the main building, yes. and I got tear gassed." Piano and scarf. Piano scarf. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like, "Tell me yes. your name and where you're from." And she's like, "Blah blah blah, from Tennessee." And you're like, "What is wrong with you? You just committed like a, a complete crime, and you're like willing to actually disclose your personal details? Like, wow." It's it's pretty insane. I feel like that's actually what makes me feel worse about it is that it's like they're totally <laughs> inept and still uh, we're got in, we're let in, whatever. So I'm like, this is a yeah. terrible message to people who actually have tactical reasoning to say like, hey, the doors are open. I'm just like, this is a... Just the whole well, thing. but I, in some ways, I think that's maybe why the doors were open because they maybe didn't take them so seriously. Like some of the people, you know, I saw them. Yeah. It said civil. They were wearing shirts that said "Civil War, January twenty or six, twenty twenty one." And like, it, this is a, a thing that I think some on the far left, you know, I don't really know a lot about Antifa and the actual, you know, validity of the claims that are made against them. Mm -hmm. But if it is true that this is a far left group who is anarchistic in intention and action, and this group, you know, this, this idea that we should just burn society down and that, you know, we should just start all over. It, It like, it really is adolescent in nature, I think, you know, to really think that Mm -hmm. like, if we were just to totally remove all of these structures and systems and everything, I'm not saying or advocating by any means that we should keep them as they are. They need to be evolved and and shifted significantly. But the idea that we should just get rid of all of them and that something good is going to be born in that kind of vacuum is is an absurdity to me. We mm-hmm. would have chaos and chaos nobody wants that like it would it would be insane Mm -hmm. I think a lot of this is this like fantasy of it's like there's a certain kind of pleasure that does happen from catastrophe I think that oh what is that what is that called there's a German word for it or something isn't there like where it's like of course (laughs) the Germans the Germans (laughs) they love sorry I I, I shouldn't make accents all the time I do I do German accents way too easily Um, but yes the Germans you know they really like the the chaos and what is that called Um, schadenfreude when you have pleasure in someone else's uh, uh, horrible experiences misery Misery. yeah totally you know but yeah I mean it, it is and I, I think it's it is quite childlike to think like, yeah, everything just needs to be obliterated and then mm-hmm. something good is going to come out of that. I get to be part that. of something. Totally, totally. And it's, it, I think, a really bizarre form of escapism. Quite, to be completely truthful, at yes. some point in my experience, I, I definitely indulged in it too. It was just like this sense of like, yeah, all of this is messed and it all needs to go away, you know? And, and then I think if you, um, if you really reflect on the history of human civilization, and again, I am not saying that where we're at right now is this like peak experience of, of human capacity and potential, but 
you think about like how far we've come and how amazing it is that we are as cooperative as we are considering that we are barely not cave people you know like we're doing really well yes things need to be changed but the idea that everything just needs to blow apart and that something far better is going to emerge out of that I I completely disagree Mm. yeah totally it's it's like this whole like I'm just gonna like burn it all down Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then I'll somehow start over and it'll be better and it's like well no the same problems are gonna keep happening because you're not actually addressing what's wrong with the system. Yeah. Yeah. And nor are you actually having um, an awareness, you know, and, and really paying attention to what is beautiful. You know, you and I were having this conversation last week about the shittiness of the internet, you know, and the amount of horrible stuff you can find on the internet and how ridiculous it is and what it contribute, how it contributes to like neurosis and, and conflict and polarization. And then there's this other side of it where like, it's filled with beauty and humor and amazing things mm-hmm. and incredible information. You know, it's 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 how we engage with things that's really important. And I say that to clients all the time is that it's not really what we do in the world, but how and why we do it. You know, it is the intentional energy that we bring to things that is critical. And I, I don't think, again... You know, the the teenage brain is actually not capable or or it's very difficult for it to engage in that kind of self-reflective thinking of like, how am I showing up in this system? Not, it it, it defaults to going, well, the system's messed, you know, and it needs to change rather than Mm -hmm. like, how am I engaging with this? You know, and nothing is implicitly Uh, Well, I'm sure that there are things that are implicitly bad, but when it comes to things like technology, right, it's how we use it. It's it's how we decide to engage with it and society too, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like what you're saying speaks to a thing that's been coming up for me a lot, which is is like this fear of really, truly taking responsibility, mm. really always bringing it back to how am I engaging with this? Mm-hmm. What am I doing? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That it's like, I think that there is this tendency to be like super self-absorbed in a how does everything like make me comfortable kind of way. Mm -hmm. And I feel like our society feeds that. But what it doesn't feed is like, how am I actually contributing to the things that make me uncomfortable? Right. So can you talk about the fear? I mean, you said that, you know, this fear has been coming up. What is the fear exactly? Mm, For me, I think that it's kind of like once I step into this responsibility, there's no turning back. But it's like, I will have to be responsible Sign on the dotted line. Your soul is mine. Mine. That's what it feels like. And I'm like, I don't know. I kind of like being a kid. Um, Although I'm very far away from childhood. But um, yeah, I I think that there is this kind of like, um, once I step into it, there will be greater harm when I drop it. If I drop it, I'll likely drop it. <laughs> Greater harm to you, you think? Um, that's a good question. I think, um, yes, greater harm to me, the people I care about. <sighs> it, that It just feels like it, it would be really impactful. I guess I can't even... Mm-hmm. Make that... It doesn't make sense. It totally does make sense to me. And, and I... What I think it... Uh, that fear speaks to or is indicative of, Allison, is the sort of vestiges of um, this programming that we all have and that we've alluded to and explored before, that we live in a punitive universe. You know, that that we are going to be punished when we're bad. We are going to be, you know, and, and what I heard and what you just said is that I'm going to be punished even more intensely if I say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be a good aligned person and I'm going to show up the way that I know I, I want to, you know, that means that the the kickback, the the punishment is going to be that much more severe when I step out of line, right? Mm. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. a critical, I know that that's a critical relational aspect that we have to explore as practitioners and as spiritual seekers to affirm first that we do not live in a punitive universe. We do not. That, that Mm. That is a construct of the ego mind to even conceptualize of 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 a universe that operates that way, you know, and um, I I, th- I was telling you about this. I've been rereading some Ashley Montague, who I really really enjoy, a philosopher from the mid twentieth uh, century, 
And um, his book on being human, you know, is is really the main thesis of it is that so much of Western colonial, you know, contemporary society, um, the value system of it is really rooted in a misinterpretation uh, of Darwinian philosophy and Darwinian thought. So Charles Darwin came along and, and looked at, you know, birds in the Galapagos and said, oh, survival of the fittest, like the environment is, is creating pressure in a sense on organisms um, to adapt and the ones who adapt uh, survive, right? And so it was this, this idea that, you know, there was a it was an exchange, a relationship between organisms and their environment, and which determined whether or not they would actually continue for a long period of time or they, they have offspring. Mm. So he apparently did not originally th um, think of that sort of thesis as competition. He didn't think of it as like, oh, that means that organisms, it's like a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and the organisms are actually competing with each other. He actually saw a lot of cooperation as being, you know, innate and essential mm -hmm. within ecological systems that, you know, uh, the birds weren't really competing with each other. They were responding to and interacting with their environment, right? But a lot of people uh, at the time took it as, okay, this means that if you're the last you know, person in the line when you're running from a bear, then you're going to be the one that dies. So you just can't be that last person. So it's it's all about scrambling right. over everybody else. And we really lost um, any, you know, philosophical grounding in cooperation as a core aspect of our species, of life, you know, mm -hmm. that that even I've said to people before, you know, if you look at a hawk, eating another bird. That is a cooperative act. As strange and crazy as that seems, mm -hmm. you know, the bird needs the hawk to eat a certain amount of the birds or the bird's population go crazy and then all the birds die, right? E ecology and, and our planet is a cooperative system, but our psyches emerged this idea that it was competitive. And out of that came this sense that then we're going to be punished if we're the one in the, the bottom of the, the, or the last in the line, right? And so we're always, mm. we're always trying to improve ourselves and check ourselves and, and make sure that we are like better and better and better. And we're comparing ourselves to other people all the time. And that's actually not our natural state. I, I don't believe that it's our natural state at all. I think that it is a, a highly constructed and, and erroneous state. And I mean, Montague's, you know, writings, that's basically what the whole book is about. And so the question, I suppose, the, for my long-winded exploration there is that how do we reaffirm that we are that we are supported, loved, and wanted here? We do not have to prove that we belong. Because I mean, a competitive, punitive kind of philosophy says, "Okay, you're not enough right now. This is a this is a competition. You got to keep going, keep pushing, keep whatever." You know, how do we come back to or or recreate that sense of like? of belonging and, and being held by our mm -hmm. system, right? How do you create that? Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting that you say the word competition because I feel like recently I have, it's like, you know, I guess the, the more you commit to this path, the more you kind of see parts of yourself that you weren't aware of before. And one of those things is like, oh my God, I'm so competitive. And I can say that freely because I would have never described myself as a competitive person. Mm. I am not not outwardly competitive. I don't feel like I need to like walk into a room with like my my chest puffed out or anything mm -hmm. like that. And I think that's why the competitive nature in me is so... Uh, Sneaky, <laughs> insidious. Yes, exactly. Because it's totally. like this. I know. It's like this, like mm -hmm. territorial. That I'm just like, whoa. I really am always kind of like looking out to protect my stuff, and I don't even know what my stuff is in most cases. But it's like I just know I don't want anybody touching it. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but I don't want you to have it. And the the hard part about releasing that I've recognized is that it's like, oh, that's scarcity. Mm -hmm. I'm competitive because I'm afraid that 
if I don't somehow guard my stuff, it will get taken and there will be no more. And so to me, when I hear you give that example of like, just don't be the per- the last person mm-hmm. in line being chased by the bear is uh, maybe making peace with like, sometimes you are the slowest one. <laughs> sometimes you get eaten. <laughs> sometimes you do get eaten. Well, see, and that's a, there's, I suppose I shouldn't position this sort of exploration as like there being one answer, one way that we affirm our belonging, our sense of support, our, our our connection to all that is, right? There are many ways and many tools, I think, on the path that help us come back into that alignment with 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 being here, with being on this planet and and drop the competitive framework, right? Um mm-hmm. figure out how to go into this well. Maybe I start with a personal example and something that my teacher said to me years ago, you know, is that I have um, three siblings, two sisters and a brother. And I was living in San Francisco at the time. And my older sister was experiencing um, some significant success. She's a musician and she was winning some awards. And, you know, I could tell that my parents were very mm. proud of her. And and I, you know, I, I felt like I was doing pretty good in my life, but also wasn't, you know, feeling totally fulfilled and I was just wrecked by, uh, I mean, what I would call a, a competitive sort of emotional experience, but this sense of that somehow her success diminished my worth, right? And that's what I hear in what you're talking mm-hmm. about is this feeling of there's not enough for all of us to be who we are and, and successful. And, and it's, it is the essence of the scarcity mindset, you know, but, but I was just like, you know, when she succeeds, that makes me look worse, right? That that makes me yeah. there's there's this comparative kind of framework that I'm placing myself and her within, right? And my teacher said, you know, you are branches of the same tree, and if she is gaining the light of the sun and creating energy in her leaves, she's sharing it with you. You are always mm-hmm. connected, right? And for you to want to her to suffer because I mean there is sort of a subconscious like oh kind of hope she gets shot again <laughs> a little bit of schadenfreude was there it was <laughs> but, but really like it, it was like this feeling of like oh if she was doing worse then I'd do better right and I mean you think about that again yeah. in an ecological or a, a biological sense that like a a tree to for a tree to wish you know one branch to wish that the other branch was doing <laughs> shitty is like pretty crazy you know right. and it right. it was a huge uh struggle and and was not immediately accessible but here's where blessing comes in as a primary tool of this lineage of this practice is that everything we want for ourselves, we want more for everybody else, right? We look at someone and go, I want you to have all the money in the world. And and there is going to be, you know, massive cognitive dissonance at first where some part of your brain's like, no, I don't. I want them to suffer and I would like them to experience (laughs) shitty things, you know, because that's what we're used to, right? But it's kind of like yeah. working with affirmations. We don't have to have all of our mind on board with the affirmation for the affirmation to actually be having an effect on our overall experience. We just need to repeat it. We need to program into our mind that mm. we are moving away from that competitive comparison, schadenfreude kind of you know mindset into a mindset of blessing. And that's what my teacher had me do was she was like, just imagine your sister doing better and better and better and better. And you know what was really interesting actually is that at the time my guides started giving me messages about my sister and and what she needed to do to have more success. I started actually, yeah, and they would talk to me all the time about how she needed to take care of herself and what she needed to do to do, you know, better, have more and stuff. And it, it hurt Allison. Like sometimes I was like, cause I was like, I don't want, I don't want her to do better. (laughs) Like it was such an interesting (laughs) position to be in, you know, to be literally so clearly seeing my programmed ego fear-based self, you know, who was still in that competitive framework 
And then what happened when I engaged in blessing was I got to contribute to the abundance of other people, you know, and I got to be in service Mm -hmm. and it felt so good, but it did take some time to like, you know, program my, my way out of it. Right. And now I can Mm -hmm. absolutely honestly say that every person in the world who thrives, I am immediately, my mind immediately goes to, I hope they even have more than that. I hope that they have more success mm-hmm. and more amazingness and more whatever, you know. And I mean, the the rule that my teacher gave me is everything we wish for other people, we get back seven times in return. But I think mm-hmm. that when you come into alignment with how good blessing feels, this is our true state. You know, it is, we are generous, generous beings. Um you're, you stop being so worried about what's coming in, you know, because you just want more of that mm-hmm. feeling of how good it feels to be loving and in service to other people, right? Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, I've been, you and I were talking about um, creating a, a sort of set of, not not rules, but like just some ideas and core thoughts and and kind of uh, also not commandments. These are weird names for these this sort of idea. <laughs> Thou shalt not do this ever. Um, no, I, but I've been thinking about this because I actually have been uh, thinking about writing a book for a while about like the basis of of my mm. uh, practices and lineages and stuff and how I understand and interact with uh, medicine and healing and power and all of these things that we talk about, you know. And one of the ones that I've been really working on this week thinking about is is what you alluded to is that we affirm that we live in abundance, that we affirm that we live in a universe where there, it is not limited in opportunity, possibility, you know, money. Uh, it, it is not. It's truly not limited. And what gets us into that is gratitude. And that's, you know, one of our other basic tools. And and there's such simple tools that I think often people are like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that later. I'll, I'll practice gratitude later. But mm-hmm. that's reprogramming the mind to go, I say thank you for what this day is, for the sunlight, for the, the, the oxygen, whatever. And the more we do that, the more we move into that abundance mindset, you know, which a competitive mind or experience can't exist when abundance is there. It just can't. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that gratitude is tied to devotional practices? Mm. What do you say more about that? I've been trying to like piece this together. Um, there is, you know, I keep, I, I mean, I'm starting to see this kind of like, I clearly need to, always, I guess, recommit to this concept of gratitude. Mm. And it does, it is it is exactly as you're saying, that it's just like, oh yeah, I'm not an ungrateful person. I, I'll i be grateful. And then when do I actually mm. consciously, practice intentionally practice it? Yeah. And so there there is part of me that I'm like, is that tied to devotional like prayer Mm. is it it, I guess it's like the nuts and bolts of like how does gratitude actually happen in a way that feels like oh yeah uh, this this feels like a gratitude practice Mm. yeah I mean I I there is a truly sacred quality to gratitude it is it can and and I think maybe often first is experienced as as and people think of it as like oh I'm just being superficial about you know practicing saying thank you about and two things or whatever but uh, again I believe that our core selves our true selves are deeply deeply grateful in my lineage in, in my teacher's tradition you know to be incarnated as a human being is like the greatest greatest blessing and i recognize in saying that that like holy shit there's a lot of suffering that one can experience as a human being and not in a moment ever would i turn around to someone who's actively suffering and go come on you're so lucky to be here you know stop whining about this <laughs> yeah. right it is hard to be a human being, absolutely, but it is also immensely beautiful. And and we, you know, all the spirits, all of the energies around us want nothing more than to experience being in these bodies and having this experience, right? But because of our the suffering and and because of the the lack of, you know, I think 
good development of a relationship, a healthy relationship to suffering, we tend to be um, driven by that uh, the 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 pessimistic bias, the negativity bias in our brain that says, look at all the things you don't have, look at all the things that are shitty, look at all the things that are painful, rather than looking at what is good, you know, and and it's hard. It's it's mm. five times stronger. Your brain wants to go, I think we've explored this before, but it wants to go into finding what's wrong, right? R- rather than finding what is is good and beautiful. And so I think if if we are committed to dropping the fear and shame based stories of the ego self, you know, and, and committed to being a spiritual practitioner, it is a deeply devotional practice that has to be practiced every day for the rest of your life to say thank you over and over and over and over again. And, you know, it, it, we never get to the point where it's like, oh, I'm, I'm done with that. Right. It's, it's because we still, so long as you live on this planet, you will have that biological mechanism in your own neural neurological system that wants to look at what sucks and it's always going to be there, right? Yeah. And so we are, it's its not like we're in a battle with that, but we're always kind of rallying against that tendency that we have as, as biological organisms, right? I mean, when I recently, um, I'm, I'm really focusing on the, the devotional prayer aspect of, of gratitude and I have a sauna most mornings and I'll um, come out of the sauna and actually stand naked in the middle of the yard every morning and and say thank you to the directions, to the sun, to the wind. I'm really I've been working a lot with with my relationship with wind over the last while. And this um, my Lakota teacher, you know, it was really he taught me such beautiful prayer practices where he'd say, you know, every time you start a prayer, you say thank you to the universe to the sun and you work closer and closer and closer in you say thank you to the sun you say thank you to the planets you say thank you to the stars you say thank you to the moon you say thank you to the earth you say thank you to your community to your country and you work closer and closer and closer and closer in and then the last thing you do is you ask for help for what you need but you need to actually lay the the bedrock in a sense for asking for support you know if, if you are using prayer for those sort of intentions or purposes by creating this sense of I'm already so grateful for what I have you know and what is what is yeah. offered to me and and that's the space in which I think miracles and magic and healing actually happen right is is and I, it mm-hmm. we're capable of doing that of saying I'm grateful for this and here's this thing that I'm I'm working on and is challenging to me does that make sense mm-hmm it does. It makes a lot of sense. I feel like that. I think when you are in the midst of like the murkiest waters in, in terms of like not being able to get out of like the sunken place of how terrible things are, it's one hard to see that there are always quote good things to be grateful for. There are these kind of like essential things that we will never be without. And then I think the other piece of that is learning to be grateful for things that are uncomfortable too, where mm-hmm. it's like even the things that are bad in our lives, quote bad in our lives, how can we say thank you for those too? I think that's been right. the trickiest part. And I actually was thinking the other day, like, how do I get out of that? I was like working with the deck mm. and I'm just like, how do I get out of this kind of inability to mm. open up in, in this way, to open up my heart? And I pulled virus mm. and it was just like, I think it's not just the kind of virus <laughs> word that we never say anymore. Not, not coronavirus, just, just the virus. Just virus, all the viruses, all together. Just virus. Uh-huh. And, and part of that card is what is, like, through the bad things, what is essentially good? Yeah. And, and I feel like that, especially maybe that's the thing that's coming up to work with now, that it's like there's all this quote, bad stuff mm-hmm. to look at. But can we say, hey, I'm actually really grateful that all of this stuff is happening because maybe that will wake people up enough to X, Y, Z or this, you know. I think sometimes the challenge, or uh, Alison, I, the challenge with that is that 
it 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 creates a space for uh, a kind of bypassing, right? Where we we're forcing ourselves into being grateful when like there's a lot of a lot of crazy pain and and suffering happening for us and and that can be a kind of almost like a spiritual bullying towards ourselves, you know, to be like you need to move into gratitude right now. What if yeah, we instead move into receptivity? You know, and receptivity is is different and and this is, you know, yet another tool a, a way of finding that sense of belonging and that sense of 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 uh, not even I won't use the word safety, but like that sense of of being a part of this system, right? Is is be in it, mm-hmm. be here in this moment. Smell what you're smelling, hear what you're hearing, breathe your breath, and notice the sensation of breathing. I mean, mindfulness is is so co opted in our contemporary culture as this like thing that you know negates stress, so you can work harder and blah blah blah. But it's like it is it is the essence of spiritual practice is to be in this moment you know and and to ask ourselves to have gratitude for what is in this moment is maybe a bit too much sometimes maybe we just need to go mm. can i be receptive to what is here have a quality of curiosity a quality of of surrender right i mean when i was really sick with lyme disease and i can't remember if i've referenced this before you know but i like i had like paralysis on one side of my face I couldn't walk properly like I was just mm-hmm. I was just wrecked and I read that quote from Albert Einstein you know there's only two ways to live your life one is as if nothing is a miracle and one is as if everything is a miracle and the mm-hmm. I can't say that in that moment I went yay I'm so glad for Lyme disease like oh my god I'm so right, lucky yeah. you know thank you thank you that emerged later you know and it emerged as I developed a, a, a relationship with those spirochetes and and you know the 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 awarenesses that were sort of birthed through that process but what emerged in that moment when I read that was this sense of I'm going to be in this I'm actually going to be here, right? Because Mm -hmm. where my psyche had been previously was wanting to be out of it constantly, right? And and I mean, that's... like when you think about our relationship with with viruses, with being sick, right? Is we always don't want to be sick. We want to get out of it. We're we're trying to. We see the symptoms as bad. We see the experience as bad, and and there's this aversion to that state. And it's pretty understandable. I'm not saying that you know it's easy to be okay with it, but but maybe the first step is to just actually practice going okay stop like what is what is in this moment here can i take some sort of mm-hmm. uh, receptive catalog in a sense of what i'm experiencing right is there grief here is there loneliness is there whatever and i mean that's that's the trickiest stuff for us to do is actually acknowledge what's here because we're always running away from mm-hmm. this moment right and the suffering that it contains yeah. i yeah i hear what you're saying and i think that there is some of that maybe where i I'm like, okay, here's the stuff that is unpleasant. How can I be grateful for this too? Is a way of not just feeling like, hey, this sucks. Yes. And that, you know, gratitude can become a band-aid. Blessing can become a band-aid. You know, uh, most of our spiritual practices can be co-opted and often are by our ego mind, right? And I mean, the only way to tell if they're being co-opted is, are they removing you from this moment? You know, are you uh, dislocating mm. yourself from the experience of of right here, and and you're all of a sudden in the future where like you are having a different relationship to what's happening, right? Or you you are different, right? And and if we use gratitude as a like ah this is uncomfortable here, how do I you know get out of it? Which again is is often how it's used. Then it's not doing its that's job. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, that's what that's what that most is exactly people. How I'm using yeah, it. Yeah, and I mean I I have clients all the time who will like tell me the the most unbelievable horrible things that have happened f- for them and to them, and they'll in a millisecond skip into yeah you know but I, I should be grateful for it and and yeah it's it's probably teaching me something and it's like whoa 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 no that is escapism yeah. you know and it it feels easier you know in the moment to like because you're not going to sit on that sort of knife's edge of the the pain and the suffering of, of what's contained in there but that that I think is is where 
you know, we've, as a society, gratitude has has moved into that spiritual materialism realm a lot of the time where we are using mm-hmm. it to avoid things we don't want to feel, right? And so I suggest— Okay, so that— Oh, go ahead. I was going to ask a question about that, yeah. where it's like that to me is the hardest part about gratitude is because I feel like the gratitude that we learn, oh, just be thankful, you know, things are good, people have it worse than you, mm, da, da, Exactly. Da, da. Um, there, there is a hard part for me where it's like, how do I open up to suffering that is all already there and hold this feeling of gratitude? Because it does feel like, oh, you know, gratitude is one of these like higher emotions and we can mm-hmm. only feel it we're in this like open and loving state. And that's not. I'm I'm not in that state, so I didn't want to. I don't know how to be grateful outside of that state. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? I do, and I think that I would pull those. Uh, what I hear is, is sort of two separate practices apart. Okay, um, and I would encourage people, you know, encourage you to practice gratitude as a very simple form of mind training. You know, where you are trying to program that reticular activating system, you know, that seeks for confirmation of whatever you want to see in the world. You know, you're programming it with the story that you want to see what's beautiful, you know. And so Mm -hmm. you start with, um, I mean, what most indigenous societies recommended is, is saying hello, good morning, thank you to the sun, saying thank you to the wind, saying thank you to the earth. Like it, it, and it, it doesn't. Um, it, it maybe will start as a sort of perfunctory, like uh, disembodied feeling, you know, or thought. It eventually will become a, a feeling, a, a somaticized experience where you're like, wow, I, I'm so lucky to have the trees and, and the water and everything else, right? Every time you eat, you say thank you. Every time you drink, you say thank you. You say thank you to your body. You start practicing that all the time. And at the same time as that, and I mean that in itself is a mindfulness practice, but you also bring in mindfulness as much as possible. Single-mindedness, where whatever you are doing is the thing you are thinking of and paying attention to. You really engage with your sensory experience. When you're washing the dishes, you're washing the dishes. You're noticing everything that's happening in that moment, right? That is like the, the, the core training for eventually being able to apply those tools when struggle or suffering is happening, right? I think the problem mm. or the the way that we tend to apply these tools is we think we're going to do it when suffering occurs. We think we're going to apply it in the moment. And then we use it as that bypass tool, right? To say, okay, I'm, I'm so grateful that, you know, oh, I'm not a starving child in Africa. And then we get, use it to get away from our emotions, right? And it's, it's, it's how we apply those tools. You know, they are not, um, in a sense, benign or or how would I even describe that the tool itself is is not going to always result in in the same outcome it depends on how and why we're applying it right and and we as modern human beings because we tend to be highly impatient and we have lost the the quality largely or the the recognition that like consistency and discipline and persistence are are absolutely critical patience these are things that are absolutely necessary on the spiritual path. Yes, spontaneous, you know, uh, spiritual awakenings and everything, they happen, they're beautiful, they're wonderful, but we don't wait out for them. We practice every single day and we show up, you know, so that when things are hard, we can apply them in a really uh, effective and and clear way, right? Mm, yes. Makes sense? Now, the yes, it makes sense, but now it's like, oh, the discipline Did I say the, the do D it. word? <laughs> The D word. That's not a word I don't like in here. Uh, it's amazing how frequently this conversation seems to be coming up right now. You know, it's it's really uh, re- a lot of people really recalibrating and questioning their relationship to discipline. And I, I we were talking before, but like as I was mentioning to you, a lot of people with really incredible creative capacities and you know this vibrant sort of spirit who see discipline who who interact with discipline um 
through the lens of, of patriarchy, right? Discipline as a punitive, um, uh, very yeah. restraining, constraining experience that is is this kind of, you know, pushing down on you. Joyless. and Oh, totally. And this, this yeah. suppression of of all the creativity, you know, and I've, I've heard that from people that they're like, I don't I want to be disciplined because I'm going to lose my, my life force, right? And and I, I mean, I certainly don't think of discipline that way now, but I, I used to. I used to think that it was like a, a, a punitive thing, right? Mm-hmm. So? Uh, it's like, I, I feel like that is the tricky part, especially now that we're working from home. We're, we're yeah. just in charge of our own schedule a lot more than we were before most of us. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, how do we shape the day, but also recognize that, you know, we're going through traumatic situations constantly. So I struggle with that, that it's like, you know, not doing the thing that I've been doing with gratitude, which is like, oh, it's fine. This is good. I'm (laughs) grateful for this. It's like, oh, you know, this is a really hard experience that we're all collectively having, Mm -hmm. but I will just like really structure my day and be disciplined Mm -hmm. and I'll get, you know, Build my business or whatever you're doing. But I, I think, you know, what, what you said a moment ago, Allison, about like discipline as being a joyless process, right? It is a, it's a belief. And that's a belief that is programmed into us through the civilization, the value system that we've been brought up in. But it is not true. Discipline can be, you know, towards joyful and in support of joyful practices, right? And I think that, um, reclaiming discipline as as we 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 um, have discipline as, in that we schedule some time to dance every single day, or we schedule some time to sing, or we schedule some time to have free art and exploration. Right? I mean that mm-hmm. the the root of the word discipline is to be a disciple unto oneself. That's what it actually means, okay? And and it's not this like something that comes from outside of us and says, you got to do this and this is your productivity report that needs to be submitted at the end of the day, right? That's unhealthy patriarchal, you know, father energy, right? Is that we think that we're doing this for outside gains and outside acknowledgement. Real discipline is we get to know ourselves and we become our own disciple. And what is a disciple but someone that that follows the sacredness of a person, right? That is someone, you know, a disciple is like, this person is brilliant and amazing and I'm going to do whatever it takes to support them, right? That is what discipline is oriented towards and and wants, right? So so in that, we have to get to know, well, who are... who are you and what do you need in order to feel fulfilled fulfilled in the day? And I mean, I use some pretty basic but really effective tools with people like the wellness wheel or self-assessment stuff to get people to get into this space where they're like, yeah, I love dancing and I haven't done it for 20 years. Okay, well, how do we get that into your day, right? So that that becomes a yeah. discipline, but it is discipline in the service of joy. And so through that kind of practice, we can diffuse that, that core belief that like discipline and Joy or they cannot exist in the same space, right? And we reclaim mm-hmm. a, a new form of discipline. And I, I mean, I know that I've always been a, a disciplined person. Again, as I said before, it's often been this very like punitive, like you have to be at the gym for this amount of time, blah, 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 right? But um, discipline has generally come fairly easy to me. I like structure and I like, you know, containment. And I know that that's not always the case for people. But I think, you know, if you work in small steps, um, asking yourself like, okay, where's some areas in my life where I'm not feeling particularly fulfilled, maybe around money. And you set some really simple, easy to reach goals that take two to three days, right? Nothing long reaching, nothing that you have to commit for a long period of time. Um, and you do it, you know, hopefully set something that's achievable and you start to build that internal sense of like, oh, I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this because it's it's in service of of yeah. my needs, right? Then we can change our relationship with discipline. Right. Because it's like even just saying, oh, scheduling and dance, mm-hmm. I think that when... I have historically thought of discipline. I think about all the stuff I don't want to do mm-hmm. and figuring out exactly. how to make myself do those things. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, you know, the the 
the concept of the hollow bone in shamanic practice, you know, that that is what we aspire to as practitioners is being a hollow bone. Now, if you've ever seen a hollow bone, like the, it's hard and there's this space right through the middle, right? And that's where spirit flows through, creativity flows through, healing energy flows through. And and the, the purpose and the intention of all of the practices that we do is to be able to abide as the hollow bone. So the hollow bone is not wobbly. It's not flexible. It's it's quite rigid, right? And it needs to be that in order to let spirit energy through. And and so asking ourselves, how do I create this this? And I, I shouldn't use the word rigid, I guess, because it is there is a, always a quality of flexibility, even in our bones, of course, you know. But um, mm-hmm. there's there's this solidity, right? Where it's like, okay, I know what I need. I drink three liters of water every day because I know that that's what my body needs. And we build that over time. And the the paradox of doing that is not so that we become very sure of who we are, but who, so that we can step out of the way. And we can, we can stop laying our expectations and assumptions and, you know, uh, judgments on the world and on our process, right? It's, it's, it's so that we can actually relax into our own being. The structure creates the relaxation. This is the, the greatest paradox mm-hmm. about discipline is that I think anxiety can and can and does perpetuate endlessly in a space where there's no discipline, right? Because we're constantly going, I should be doing these things, but I'm not doing them and now I'm unfulfilled and I'm Mm -hmm. flailing about, right? And so the discipline, sacred discipline, which is very different, again, than punitive or externally sort of originated discipline. It has to come from the relationship that we've cultivated inside and knowing what it is that we need. Um, But when Mm -hmm. we're practicing it, it is a truly sacred act. So what are the first steps toward that? You might have said them, but my brain is like, I don't want to do it. So I couldn't hear you. Why are you talking? Um, Can you you possibly repeat? Can you repeat for me? Uh, So how do we really open up into sacred discipline where it's like, I mean... Yeah, where do we start? It just is like, I need so much discipline that I'm like, God, I need to plan on my whole day, but maybe I need to take it a little slower than that. What I One of the things that I recommend for people often, Allison, is to actually sit down and ask yourself, where are you spending your time? And, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I was talking to someone a while ago who was saying that they're spending four hours a day on Instagram and then feeling like they didn't have Ooh. enough time to do stuff. Right. So we are the most distracted human beings who the least present human beings that have ever existed on this planet. And it calling ourselves into awareness is not always a pretty thing. You know, it's not always pleasant to go, whoa, okay, I'm watching TV for six hours a day or whatever we're doing, right? But taking stock mm-hmm. of where we're at, you know, is is like calling ourselves into okay. For, for better or worse, this is what's happening in my life right now. And as I mentioned, you know, the wellness wheel assessment that you, know, you can do online for free, which is a series of questions that just like looks at different kind of aspects of your life and, and how well things are going. You know, I think that people could take these every six months and they would really every two months, you know, when they're first starting out and they would really benefit from it of actually reflecting on really how are things going right and it gives you this kind of visual mm-hmm. representation of all of these quadrants and and how things are actually how you're navigating stuff in your life right and so that that awareness practice is really critical to go you know what am i wasting my time on basically right and and being honest with ourselves about that so from that place, you know, we can start to set micro goals, something really achievable. You know, I don't know if you've interacted with James Clear's stuff. Um, I think the book is called Atomic Habits. It's a really great book. I oh recommend my, it. Yes. Oh, yeah. I just got it. Yeah. Yes. I'm like 14 pages in. Yeah. And I was like, never want to read it. <laughs> but yes, I will read it. <laughs> it's excellent, you know, and he gives some. Really uh, effective, very uh, immediately applicable tools to change habits, right? And I mean, mm-hmm. you know, to change a habit, I think you, you first have to even recognize what habit you want to change, right? So there's got to be some element of yeah. awareness. And and a lot of the time we do have an awareness. We're just probably keeping it in some like, you know, dusty corner of our mind because we don't want to actually acknowledge <laughs> that we're doing that, 
right? But he mm, gives. I don't know what you mean. I, I'm sure you don't, and no one else does either. <laughs> but uh, it, it's it's really you know the more that we can bring that awareness in, and then start practicing some of the tools. I mean, he he studies behavior change, yeah. right? And I mean, this is the the seven million dollar question in in all aspects of of personal growth, of healing, and everything else is how do you get people to to change, right? And and I think that this is this should be a, a critical question that we're exploring within educational processes and systems and, and institutions, you know, is that I don't think most people come out of high school, you know, with a, a really solid awareness of their own personality traits and how what what stymies yeah. them in, in their processes and, you know, where they get stuck. Like there, there's not a lot of self-awareness that's taught, you know, and so his stuff really focuses on like just being aware of, of what you're doing. And then, okay, here, try these tools to shift habits and stuff. And as we start doing it, it's a snowball effect, right? You you start to go, oh, wow, I changed that habit. Now I'm not so scared or intimidated by this other aspect of my life that I know I need to apply uh, myself to. And we start... We, we're calling power back through those those mechanisms, right? And as we get more power, then we're able to seek more power. And as more power comes in and, and power as alignment, power as connection with source, right? So when we are unaligned, meaning we are doing one thing, but we're feeling another, right? We're eating a cookie, but we're going, oh my God, I shouldn't be eating this cookie. That is a loss of power, mm-hmm. you know, is that our, we are we are divided, right? So Either when we decide that we're going to let ourselves eat the cookie or we don't eat the cookie, then we're back in power, right? And either one of those are mm-hmm. fine. Quite honestly, cookies are not, they're they are benign, you know, don't eat 17 of them, but like they are relatively benign, right? They We imbue mm-hmm. them with meaning and whatever by by thinking of them in a particular way. But if you're going to eat a cookie, eat the goddamn cookie and, and be okay with it or <laughs> don't eat it, right? And so when we start right. calling ourselves back into alignment, we get more power. And then we go, okay, wow, where else am I not in alignment? And it it does snowball, you know, it doesn't happen overnight, you know, and that's where patience comes in, is that we we recognize that it's a, a process. But but the the awareness practice, mindfulness practice, calling ourselves into this moment and actually being honest with ourselves. I mean, I I do always suggest journal writing to people that we are pretty, pretty good at not as you mentioned in the beginning, you know, at not acknowledging aspects of our own character, we're really good at it. You know, it's actually a it's a survival yeah. technique. You know, we have to ignore certain aspects of our our stuff. But when we journal, right? You know, as a as a truly kinesthetic and and mental practice, right? Journal writing is involving the body because the arm and the hand are doing this, mm-hmm. but the brain is on there in there too. And things come out that you you often are like, whoa! I didn't even realize that that was in me, right? Because the body is actually speaking too. It's not just the brain that's that's uh, you know talking. So that can be really helpful too to to get some clarity on on where we're at. And, and what we're not paying attention to. The Knowing is an IntelliKey production and was recorded and produced on the traditional unceded territory of the Northern Sequipnik people. Music, editing, and production by Brent Morton at Bell Tower Audio. May our hearts and minds remain open. May we meet this day with equanimity and compassion. And may we remember our belonging to this earth, to each other, and to all that is. Thank you.